Acts 24, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter on... This past Wednesday was uh, the 20 year wedding anniversary of my wife and I, and uh, we had a great time. Thank you, thank you. Uh, We uh, dated for seven years, so we have been together for 27 years. We've been together for a lot longer than even like our lives. Look, that's a picture of our first year of marriage. We were actually driving out to California uh, to, for me to attend seminary. So this was like, I think month eight of our marriage and we were heading out there. And I don't know about you, but I think we look better today than we did back then, right? <laughs> we are aging gracefully, I, I, I do believe. But uh, you know, being with her for that long, there has been sort of, um, this realization that I think I've shared with you many times before. Uh, 20 years ago, on September 18th of 1999, my wife didn't marry a man. She married a little boy. A boy that was dysfunctional, a boy that was sort of incapable of loving her the way she deserved to be loved. I heard her a lot. I said things I should have never said to her. And uh, some of you may ask, you know, why in the world would she have married you then? Well, look at all this, right? I mean, how could she say no to this, right? <laughs> I'm just joking, I'm joking. Uh, I, I think the reason why she said yes was because she loved me. She didn't like me, she loved me. If she liked me, she would have said no when I proposed to her. But because she loved me, I think she saw perhaps maybe even something in me that I didn't even see in myself that perhaps if God were to sort of lead me on a journey, that maybe perhaps I can grow up and be a man one day to her. And I think she saw something in me a lot more than what I even was able to see in myself. And I'm so grateful that she loved me and that she was able to say yes, because I know if she only liked me, she would not have married me. She really wouldn't have. And it's been one of the best 20 years, actually the best 20 years of my life of the things that I've learned and grown just through her and her life and even her leadership. We live in such an obsessed world today of wanting to be liked. Wouldn't you agree with that? We constantly want people to like us. We want to like other people. And we somehow have sort of fooled ourselves to believe that as long as we live life being liked or having people like us, that that's enough. That's enough. That as long as our coworkers like us, as long as my friends like us, as long as my boss likes us, as long as people in my family like us, then I'm okay. That everything will be okay, right? Uh, as long as my social media post gets a lot of likes, I'm good. I'm good. You know, we live in such an obsessed world with social media that uh, studies have shown that that we're so obsessed with getting likes on our social media page that it's scientists have done some studies, social scientists, and they say that the, the, the likes that you, we obsess with on our social media posts has the same release of dopamine as drugs. You know that? And so I put up a picture of ourselves for our 20 year anniversary this past Wednesday. Do you know how many likes I got on Facebook? All time high. I haven't checked it today, but I think it was like 357. 357 people liked that photo that I posted on Facebook, and I was so tempted to put up another photo (laughs) to see how many more likes I can get if I put this one up. You guys all know what that's like, right? That when you start putting up stuff on Facebook, on social media, and you young people now, TikTok or whatever those things are called, like you start getting into that stuff and and you want people to like you, you want people to follow you, and it becomes sort of this this dopamine effect that, that becomes a drug in our lives. And what that's done, honestly, it's prevented you from living life where you want to encounter love. You actually live your life completely opposite of why God created you. Brothers and sisters, God created you for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to love you, that you can be loved, that you would understand the deep, profound reality of what it means to be loved by your heavenly Father. That is why God created you, so that you can be loved. And for so many of us, we don't know what that really is like because we just want to be liked by people. 
we get so obsessed with that. This idea of liking someone or, or you showing like to that person, it's an extremely selfish act. Because think about what that really, why we like people. We often like people because of what they can do for us, don't we? We like them because of how they make us feel. They make us feel really good. And so we like them. It's a, it's a self-centered, a, a self-transient feeling. Right? Many times uh, that we have. Love is so different. Love is not about what you can make me feel. Love is really about what I can do to better serve you, what I can do to sacrifice for you. That's what love is all about. And for a lot of us, we, we may not even know what that kind of love is. You know, it's, it's as quickly as you can like someone, I guarantee you, you can just as quickly dislike them. Amen? And the truth, as, as quickly as somebody can like you, at a snap of a finger, they can dislike you. And sometimes you're just amazed by the level of speed that it took them to dislike you. Because you thought they liked you all along, and all of a sudden now you're like, they don't like me anymore. To like someone oftentimes will also open you up to being disliked. But when you love someone, it's almost impossible to unlove them. Because love requires a sacrifice, doesn't it? Metro, it's impossible for God to unlove you. You can try, but he loves you. He sent Jesus Christ to die for you on the cross, resurrect from the dead so that you can now enter into this relationship with him that will last for all eternity. You ever hear pastors say, God not only loves you, but he likes you, right? You hear pastors say that? I think that's a really silly statement because it almost puts more weight on the fact that God likes you more than he loves you. God wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ here into this world if he just liked you. He sacrificed his only begotten son, why? because he loves you. And I think for a lot of us sometimes in this room, because we have been hurt by people in our lives, these intimate relationships that we were supposed to have like our parents, because we were so deeply wounded by them, because they didn't love us the way that we needed to be loved, for some of us the pain of that is so deep that we don't want to be loved anymore. Or we don't want people to attempt to love us because of the hurt that we feel. Maybe you're in a position today where you're not in a place where you really believe God loves you because of some of the circumstances that has happened in your life. And you're here today just wondering why God doesn't love you. We're gonna talk a little bit about that as well. But I'm here to tell you this. If God didn't love you, he wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ. Because God sent Jesus Christ, guess what? You and I should never ever doubt that God loves us. If we doubt that God loves us, you've created him in your own image. Because God loves you. He loves me. He died for us on the cross and resurrected from the dead. But if we have not encountered that love, if we haven't encountered a a healthy dose of love growing up even as a child, for a lot of us, we just live life wanting to be liked and not love. And that's such a dangerous place to be. We're going to look at the entire chapter of Acts 24 today. It's going to be really cool as we take a look at this because Paul is liked by Governor Felix. And we're going to learn why that caused them more harm than good at the end. But through this passage, what we're going to learn simply is how can we sort of position ourselves in a way where we can experience God's love for us. So in turn, we can learn to love other people, all right? So we're going to listen to this audioly. Rather than you hear me speak about this or read the 27 verses, I thought it would be great for you to hear it uh, audioly. Every Wednesday, uh, Thursday at 11.30 a.m. in our church's office, we go through this thing called the Audio Bible Club. And Pastor Clay does a great job. He leads us, gives us a little background to a text, and we listen to about an hour's worth of scripture. It's fantastic. I love doing it. We will feed you. Come out on Thursdays if if you can, at 11.30 a.m. and be a part of it. But I wanted to give you a little sample of what we experienced. But let me just set up this passage. Many of you have been following along with us from week to week. Paul is standing trial yet again. He's standing before the Sanhedrin Council. This is another trial. Now he's standing before the governor. And what we find here is that the high priest Ananias and uh, the greatest lawyer Jerusalem had to offer, which was Tertullus, took a 65-mile journey to simply accuse Paul of doing some very unlawful things in hopes, in hopes, at the worst-case scenario, that uh, Governor Felix would release Paul under their care so they could eventually take him back to Jerusalem and kill him, or sentence him to death. That was their hope. Tertullus was, I, I don't know who a famous lawyer is today, but I do know back in my day, Johnny Cochran was like the most famous lawyer, the guy who represented O.J. Simpson, right? Tertullus was like the Johnny Cochran back in the first century. 
they bring out the big guns to try to get Paul to uh, be killed or to be sentenced to death. So we're going to listen to this passage. Just go there with me. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and you're going to be listening to the audio of that. So could we please play it? Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation. Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, and not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone or inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. And so God, we come to you right now and as we look at this entire chapter, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts, our minds and our ears to really engage with you, God. Um, God, sometimes coming to church on Sundays and hearing that you love us um, could really have almost zero effect in our hearts. 
God, I pray that today, that as we hear of your love, God, it would be as if we heard it for the first time. And God, it would make such a profound impact in our life to know, God, that you love us so much. God, would you help us to rest in that, help us to live in that, and help us, Lord, to live our lives in that love that you provide for us. So I pray, God, that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, that it would indeed be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. Uh, So there's really two things that is happening here in chapter 24. The first section of chapter 24 is really these, and Ananias and Tertullus, they're going before Governor Felix and Paul's on trial. And they are stating their accusations against Paul, but yet they have really no proof, no evidence to prove what they're accusing him of. And so that's a real major flaw. Even though they brought the best lawyer, he had no evidence. And lawyers, you know that when you don't have evidence, it's, there is no case. And so when Paul, just notice the, the confidence that he has and notice the power in which he speaks. He basically said, these guys have no evidence. Uh, they're talking about what I did in Asia Minor, but guess what? Nobody from Asia Minor is even here, right? And so he states his case in such a powerful way. But what I love about Paul is that every time he states his case and defends himself and he represents himself, he always brings it down to, again, that he truly believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He believes in it to the point that if that is what he is guilty of, Paul will say, then I deserve to be in jail forever. I deserve to be killed. Paul says, I am guilty of that crime. I am guilty of the crime of believing that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, that Jesus Christ truly, truly loves me and loves all of us. He is willing to go to bat for that truth. And so that's the first section that we see, but then the second section where I want to kind of hold in on is that we actually see that Felix likes Paul. He really does. He likes Paul enough that when he said to, was said to the centurion guard, he says, hey, take him away, but listen, give him some freedom. Let his friends come and see him. Let his friends come and provide for him whatever needs he has. Give him that kind of freedom. Felix likes him. Felix likes him enough that, so much so that he allowed his wife, Drusilla, to, to sit with him as well as Felix and to really learn of the ways of God, that he liked them enough where Paul was able to go and teach them the ways of God, the ways of the gospel message. Felix liked Paul enough to that, uh, for that. We also find that in the passage that Felix liked Paul enough to, in hopes that he can get a bribe from him. He thought that Paul was wealthy. He was a Roman citizen. He also brought money to the church of Jerusalem and Felix loved money and he was hoping that he could be bribed, that Paul would offer him some cash for his release and he would do that if he got the cash. But Paul never did, right? So we find that Felix liked him. But what we learn here is that that is not sufficient enough because just because Felix liked him, it didn't lead him to let Paul go, right? If Felix loved Paul, I guarantee you he would have let Paul go in that instant, but he didn't. He just liked him, but there was a problem with him liking Paul because he didn't like Paul enough because he longed to be liked more by the Jewish people. And so as a result of his desire to want to be liked by them more, Paul stayed in prison, not for a few days, a few weeks, but he stayed in prison for an entire two years before he was shipped to Rome. And we'll see a little bit of that next week. And so what we find here in this passage, we find here the the reality of why liking someone is a very toxic reality. It's a toxic thing because God didn't create you and put you on this world so that you can just like people, right? And be liked by others. No, he put us on this, put us in this world. He created us in his image so that we can experience the depth of his love for us so that we then in, in turn can begin to love other people. That's why God put us on this earth. And if you and I have been in a, in a home or in a family where love has been severely deficient, it really impacts us. And a lot of us, because it's been so insufficient for a lot of us, we sometimes long then just to be liked. We sort of strive in life to be liked. And that's when we often struggle and our worlds become so dark and so lonely That's why we live in a time where it's just remarkable, where there's so much loneliness going on, there's so much death and suicide because people are striving to live their lives to be liked and not loved. That's the problem. I uh, mentored this one guy at our church for a few years. Uh, He was a really good guy. And uh, he shared with me his life story. 
he shared with me that when he was in middle school, he caught a disease. I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but it required him to be hospitalized for about a week. And he was unconscious for a period of time. And when he opened his eyes from that state of being unconscious, he saw that his mother was at the hospital. Do you know what her first words were? How in the world are we going to pay for this? How are we going to pay for this? Your father and I do not have the money to pay for this hospital bill. She was stressing out about it. And when those were the first words he heard, all he could interpret that to mean was that he was nothing but a burden. It deeply wounded him. His mom should have said when he opened his eyes, hey buddy, how you doing? I'm so glad you're awake. She should have said, it doesn't matter how much this thing costs. Your life is so much more precious than that. So don't worry about it, we'll figure it out. The most important thing is that you're okay. He didn't receive that kind of comment from her, but rather it was a, it was a worry that they're not gonna be able to pay for this hospital bill because he's been in there for so long. And so as a result of that, it really affected him and, and, and he didn't know what it was really like to be loved. He didn't know that there was a God in heaven that loved him. And he certainly then was really struggling to love his wife whom he just had married. And so they were struggling in their relationship. And so I had to meet with them, you know, so several meetings and several times just to kind of talk to them and try to help them to process through all this. He's got two kids now and I want you to know that he has become a person where he is a, a really good husband, a great father, where he is loving on his kids, really deeply involved in their lives. How was he able to do it when the lack of love that he experienced from his parents led him to a real dark place in his life. How was he able to do it? Because he was able to encounter the love of God, our Father. I can't tell you how important this is because some of you have been Christians for a long time and somehow we sort of feel that we can operate life where we can just go on not receiving God's love for us. And I think we might be able to do it for a little while, but it's not gonna last. We're gonna get to a place where we're gonna struggle and, and, and we can all see a little bit of Governor Felix in every single one of us. That we would rather look towards our approval ratings to see how many people like us on our social media posts as opposed to really having some people in our lives that can love us properly. And for us to connect with a God who deeply, deeply, profoundly loves you. So how do we do it? Because we find that Paul was teaching them this in verse 24. It says that he was teaching them concerning the faith in Christ. And you know Paul was teaching them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know he was teaching them about how much God loves the world so much that he gave Jesus Christ. And so how does Paul sort of frame that, right? It's really in verse 25. We're gonna spend the entire sermon looking at these three key things that he talks about. It says in verse 25, now as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, what happened to Felix when he talked about these three things? Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. He, he got so scared. He said, you know what? Don't bother me anymore. Don't call me. I will call you. Have you ever said that to anyone? Don't call me. I, I will call you. Paul was now a nuisance to, to Felix because what did Paul do? He was teaching Felix the ways of having faith in Jesus Christ. The ways of having faith in Jesus Christ is simply putting ourselves in a place where we can experience the love of God. And so how do we do it? We're going to work our ways backwards, uh, backwards first here uh, for these three points that we're going to talk about. The first thing is this. If you and I want to receive God's love so that we can learn to love others well, we have to prepare for judgment day. You and I have to prepare for judgment day. Here's the only certainty that you and I can have in life. The one certainty that all of us have in common is simply this. You and I will die one day. We will. It's a truth. No one in this room can prolong their life where they will escape death. Impossible. All right? We all will share that common reality. Here's a second truth or absolute truth that's going to happen when you die and when I die. We will stand before God and he is going to be our judge. And he's going to judge us based upon how, how much faith we have in him, how much we truly believed in his love. And he will measure that by how we were able to love other people. That's the second certainty that's going to happen in our lives today. And I want to encourage you here that if you want to experience God's love for you, get to know your judge. Have you ever been to court before? 
Have you ever been to court? It's scary, isn't it? Aren't you afraid of a judge? Because the judge has a lot of power, don't they? They have a lot of power. I mean, I, I went to court because of a traffic violation, and I was so scared of that judge. You know, thank God somebody from our church was gracious enough, who was a lawyer, said, I'll go with you. I said, thank you. And he took care of it. He stood before the judge, and they were friends. So they were able to talk. So I was just able to pay a little money uh, and not get any points in my license. Not a little, a lot of money, actually. <laughs> but if you've ever been in court and you stood before the judge, you know that judge has a lot of power, and they could ruin your life. But how about if you knew that that judge was your father? I think you'd change a little bit, wouldn't it? Judgment Day wouldn't be so scary. If that judge was your father, you'd be like, well, I'm good because my dad's got my back. He ain't going to send me to jail. He ain't going to hurt me. Judgment Day will either scare the living daylights out of some of you or Judgment Day will be a day you look forward to. Why? Because you know your father's love. Felix was scared out of his wits when he talked about Judgment Day. Why? Because he didn't know the judge. He didn't know the judge at all. And when Paul was talking about you will be judged by what you do, he realized that the things he did was really bad, right? What are some of the bad things Felix did? Well, I don't know. Maybe he decided to talk to Drusilla, who was married to a king in a small province in Syria. And he said, hey, divorce this dude and come and be one of my three wives. Maybe that's the reason why he got kind of scared because Felix wasn't a very good guy. Felix decided, encouraged his wife to divorce his current, uh, current husband so that she could now be with him and she was now a part of his three wives. I think that scared him a little bit because now he's going to have to face his judge one day and the judge may give him a harsh sentence. It's not easy, right? We find here that Felix loved money. He loved to be bribed. He loved money more than anything. And as a result of that, it probably scared him. And so he told Paul, hey, Paul, don't, don't call me anymore. Uh, I'm going to call you. I'm going to call you. You see, you and I have an opportunity to get to know the judge because the judge is your father in heaven. He truly is your father in heaven. And you have an opportunity to, to get to know and live under the power of his love for you and for me. And he's got every opportunity to transform your life in a deep way. So get to know your father because your father is the judge. You don't want to go on judgment day and then completely see God and you don't even know who he is. But if you know him, you got this. It will be a time of encouragement. It will be a, a time of blessing. It will be an opportunity for you to enter into heaven and connect with him in a deep and powerful way. And so I want to encourage you to get to know your father, your judge. That's going to help you to want to draw closer to his love so that as you get to know him, judgment day is a day that you will never fear. And I hope and I pray that death will be something that none of you fear to the point where it literally paralyzes you. Because for some of you, it paralyzes you in every way. And I get it. It's not something you and I should ever look forward to, but it shouldn't paralyze you like that. Because if it does that, it'll prevent you from experiencing the love of the Father. All right? Um, these days... I have been uh, looking into my retirement quite a bit. Uh, I am 45 years old. In 20 years, my wife and I hope to retire, and we are thinking about what our life could be at 65. Uh, if we work, we only want to work if we really are excited about the work, not because we need money. And so as a result of that, she's got a 401k she's putting into. I have a 403b plan, which is like what nonprofits do. It's like, our, it's like your 401k. I have a Roth IRA. Uh, I also invest a little bit in the stock market, not too much, but a little bit, you know, a little bit, I'm trying to see if I can get some money there to prepare myself for 65. I look at the markets almost every day. Well, not weekends, but like, you know, Monday to Friday. <laughs> I ask our people who are into investors at our church, hey, what a... <laughs> I'm your pastor, and any recommendations you have for me that you would recommend me buy a couple shares of, right? I mean, it just, I'm preparing, and when I think about this, there is a little bit of excitement where my wife and I can just kind of, you know, enjoy life, and we hope that we can enjoy life enough where we don't have to work to, to survive. That's our hope. That's our hope. And, um, but think about this. I am preparing myself for a life when I retire. How many years do you think I'm going to live after I retire? Maybe, maybe 20 years, 85? And I'm putting a lot of work and effort in preparing myself 
for that day. We have an eternity with God. And the Bible does make it very clear that when God does judge us one day, he will not just judge us based upon our faith in him, but he'll judge us based upon how much we've invested in his kingdom. And he will give us physical, tangible rewards that we can take with us and live and use in heaven. That is it. What you do here makes tremendous difference in the afterlife. What you do and how you experience the love of God, the love of your Father, and how you're able to demonstrate that love to those people, especially those that might have hurt you, how you're able to show that love is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Prepare for eternity. Know that there is a life for you in the afterlife. Prepare for it. You don't want to just get up there and be like, whoa, thank God I made it. No, get in there. And know that what God gives to you will never be taken. Jesus says, don't store your treasures in heaven. Store your, I mean, don't store your treasures on earth where moth and vermin can take it away, right? That's what he says. He goes, store your treasures in heaven where no one can steal it. Your rewards will never be destroyed. So why are we storing our treasures here on earth? It's not going to last. Store it in heaven. It will last for all eternity. I'm telling you, I hope there's a, a, a shift that you make in your life where you realize that you're gonna start living your life based upon your life in all eternity. I, I, I honestly, this is, my, this is the truth. As your pastor, I wanna be loaded in heaven. I wanna be wealthy. I wanna have it all in heaven. I, don't, I, I will give up the sacrifices here on earth so that can happen in heaven. Why? Because that's going to last for all eternity. And that doesn't happen unless we invest our lives to advance God's kingdom here on this earth for him. It's really important that you understand that today. When you get to know your judge, when you get to know that your judge is your father and you can experience the love of the father, I hope that propels you to say, you know what, I'm gonna now position myself in my life to receive his love. How can you do that? Well, that's the second thing. Second thing, how do you get to know your judge, your father? Is this, you receive God's love and love other people when we demonstrate self-control. When you demonstrate self-control, do you know that Felix had terrible self-control? I mean, he, he took another, another man's wife away from him. There were plenty of other women he could have married. She was a married woman and he had no self-control and he just said, hey, divorce that dude and come to me. And you're not going to be my only wife. I got two others at home. I mean, he had zero self-control. He had zero self-control. He loved money so much, he was hoping that Paul would bribe him. And so he kept calling him up, hanging out with him in hopes that Paul would say, hey, I'll give you some money. Let me go. He had zero self-control. And as a result of that, that's why Felix, the best case scenario for him in life was just to be liked. That's it. And when you and I lack self-control, what that really does is that it prevents us from experiencing God's love. And when we can't encounter God's love, we're not able to love other people well. And that's why no matter what, no matter how good you are and how nice of a person you are, your ability to love other people cannot be successful until you experience God's love. You will fail all the time. It's just not enough. And some of you know that in your marriage, you love your spouse, but you don't realize, you don't know why you keep hurting them. Because your ability to love is so, so impotent. And you need God's love. Proverbs 16.32, this is what it says. It's better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control, than one who takes a city. Galatians 5.22-23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control against such things there is no law self-control is a fruit of the spirit it's a it's a fruit that you and i need to grow it's a it's a fruit that god wants you and i to grow in and when you we have self-control we can encounter god's love in its purest purest form self-control literally means the ability to control oneself especially in difficult times that's what it is that's self-control it's not yeah i got self-control yeah you got self-control when there's no stress but add a little bit of stress, let's see how much self-control you have. How much self-control do you have when somebody cuts you off on the highway and they give you the middle finger and they drive off? How much self-control do you have there? Do you just say, God bless you and just go about your way? Do you press on that gas and you follow them? You want to scare the living daylights out of them. <laughs> you know, I'm not spying on you. I'm not. I, 
it's just how I am sometimes. That's all it is. I'm not spying on you. It's just like me. I mean, how many times do you struggle with self-control when you're online at Costco's and it's so long and the lady in front of you, the old lady in front of you is paying by check? That happened to me last week. This old lady was I'm like, who pays by check anymore? I mean, she, I mean, she needs a member. I mean, she paid by check and... I was, I was getting frustrated with her because she went, who do I write the check out to? Costco's. <laughs> Hurry it up. And I'm just thinking, like, what's going on? She's a nice old lady. Like, she's got to, re- I got to relax. I have to relax. I got to show a little bit of self-control here. Sometimes it's hard to show self-control with your spouse where maybe they should have filled your gas tank with some gas when it was on empty. They decide to drive your car all day. And then you come home and you're gonna go somewhere to a family function and you look at the gas lights on. You're like, why? That happened to me yesterday with my wife. I said, you use my car all day, it's on empty, the light's on, and you're not filling the gas tank up. Like, what doesn't make any sense to me? She goes, well, I thought we were going to Costco's, and you know, gas is 2.33 a gallon there, so we're gonna wait. But you knew we weren't gonna go. Like, you had hours to just say, you know what, let me just go and fill up the tank before we go to our family church. We had to go meet a family member and eat dinner there. And I'm in the car, I'm just like, she's like, why are you getting so angry? Like, you look so angry. I'm like, no, no, self-control. <laughs> self-control. Don't lose it here. Don't lose it. Why? What's going on underneath you? Why am I upset about this? What's really going on underneath there? Why do I get upset? One of the most holiest questions you can ask yourself when you're struggling with self-control is simply this. What's underneath that? Why was I losing my cool? Was it maybe because I experienced some failure or just some stress before? Am I carrying that in now in my relationship with my wife? What's underneath all of that? Self-control. Do you show self-control when your son or your daughter brings home a test grade or a report card that didn't meet your requirements? Do you show self-control or do you lose it? Do you show self-control when you're on a business trip? Nobody knows you in that town, in that city. Do you show self-control there that you will be careful? But nowadays, there are so many apps where you can just hook up with people or you can go to places or hire people to do things you should never, ever participate in, especially, especially if you're married. Do you show some self-control there? It's not easy, is it? It can be really difficult. You see, self-control will allow you and I to experience the love of God in a way because you're not allowing a sin. And, And let me just tell you, sin can be so satisfying but it only lasts a little while. And after you commit it, you realize how empty and how how miserable you feel afterwards, right? Do you show a little self-control if you're single here today and you're dating? Do you show a little self-control because you know what God's desire for you is when you're single and you're dating? It's for you to live a life of celibacy. And do you sort of, because you take your cues from the culture, because the culture, it's amazing that you meet, I meet so many young Christians today and they think having sex with their girlfriend is okay that that's totally okay with God. Oh, no, it's not. It's okay in the world's eyes, but it's not okay with God because God chooses to call you to live a life of celibacy. Will you show some self-control? They say, God, I'm gonna honor you with my body, understanding that sex is a holy practice. Sex is the same thing as praying in marriage. It's that kind of a spiritual practice. That's sacred. So because of that, I'm gonna save myself till I get married and practice it within that relationship because it's just like praying to you and getting closer to you. I will honor it at that level. Will you show self-control in that area? It's so hard. We don't live in a day and age where we champion this stuff. We just keep saying, just go for it. Whatever makes you feel good, just go for it. We lack the self-control. And as a result of that, what that's doing is that's creating a deficiency of us encountering God's love for our life, thereby allowing us to love other people. Self-control. How do we grow in self-control? Well, here it is, all right? Share it and confess it. That's it. Share it with someone, somebody who's actually a human person, not your dog, but share it with someone, all right? And just say, I struggle with this. And listen, you just get back up. That's it. God doesn't expect perfection. You will fall, right? You'll make mistakes. Get back up, confess it, and just move forward. I'm telling you that's going to help you. The second way in how you can grow in self-control, fast. 
fast from food. Do a fast, a longer fast, and just, there's something about fasting when you do that, you encounter the power of God in such a way where you experience a deep spiritual breakthrough. When I encourage you to fast, I want to encourage you to also not, don't just fast from food, fast from like social media, fast from like TV or whatever you want, YouTube, whatever you watch. Just sort of, sort of create a, a season of your life, a short season, where you can just really engulf yourself in the love of God. It'll be a game changer, I promise you, all right? So that's the second thing. Demonstrate a little self-control. Get to know your father who is your judge is the first thing. The last thing, in order for us to receive God's love and love others well, live in righteousness. Live in righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? It can be to mean to be right, right? Because the root word of righteousness is right. But I want to go a little deeper because for some of you, you love being right. You love being right so much that you want the other person who's not right to feel really bad about themselves. And that's not righteousness. Righteousness at the end is about you being good. Just saying, I'm gonna be good. I'm not gonna be great, because great can be very competitive, if you're competitive. You just wanna be good. You wanna be good. You wanna be somebody who can obey God, not so that you can be accepted, but you obey him because God has accepted you. The Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, there were three, past, uh, there were three verses that talk specifically about righteousness that kind of show the importance of how righteousness is to us if we want to encounter God's love. 6.33, Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Powerful, right? Matthew 5.6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God will always fill you. guaranteed. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If your righteousness causes you to get persecuted, let me just say this, you will definitely be persecuted because of your righteousness. That's what happened to Jesus, it will happen to you, all right? That's why the danger of being liked is so bad, because if you want to be liked by people, many times it compromises your righteousness. And so when you and I have righteousness and we're persecuted for it. Jesus says you literally have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. God will always fill you when you and I do that. Righteousness is, is says, stated three times in the Sermon on the Mount. What I want you to know, and we know this, nothing you do could ever make you righteous. The only way we're righteous is because of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross, amen? That's the only way we can be righteous, right? The only way we can receive the righteousness that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ living inside of us. But that does not mean then you start to use that as an excuse to go and lose self-control and do whatever you want. That's not what that means. What that simply means now is that because God has made you righteous through Jesus, that you and I should thirst and hunger for it because when we do, we'll experience the deeper amounts of God's love upon our lives. It will be a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so how do we grow in righteousness? Two quick things in order for you and I to grow in righteousness. The first thing is this. Pray towards Jesus' face, not his hands. Some of us in this room, when you pray, you're just focused and you're looking down at the hands of Jesus Christ. Stop looking at his hands. Do you know what I'm talking about here? Is that you're always asking God to do things for you. You're looking at his hands and say, God, use your hands to do this. Use your hands to get me a job. Use your hands to find me someone. Use your hands to heal this person. Use your hands to do that. Your prayer is nothing about God's. It's all about God's hands. Stop praying like that because when you continue to pray like that, you're never going to receive God's love. Stop looking down at the hands of Jesus and look up at his face and understand the beauty of who he is. The face of Jesus is so beautiful that when you get overwhelmed by it and when you encounter his presence in that way, you don't have to ask for his hands anymore in your life. You know why? Because Jesus says, God already knows your needs even before you ask it. And can I just be honest, the more you pray to the hands of God, I think sometimes the more bitter you will become. Because if Paul prayed that prayer like us a lot of times, if, he was, as, if you were in prison for two years, I think we would pray almost every day, God, would you please get us out of prison? Get me out of prison? Like this guy Felix even likes me. Come on, make it happen. If Paul prayed every day to the hands of Jesus, he probably would have been bitter, probably would have criticized, he probably didn't think God loved him anymore because he was so focused on his hands. Paul didn't do that. What did Paul do in prison? He focused on the face of Jesus. He encountered the beauty of who he is. And so how do we encounter the face of Jesus? How do we pray towards his face? Silence. Meaning, stop speaking when you pray. 
be quiet and engage in his presence. If anything, just say the word Jesus over and over and over again. Encounter him in silence. That's when you take your eyes off his hands and you look at his face. If you know what I'm talking about, you know that's one of the most holiest places for you to be when you can encounter the face of Jesus in that way. You ought to find other ways in how you can connect with God. For some of you, it's listening to worship music. I think that's fantastic. For some of you, it's other ways, right? It could be nature. Nature is one of the key ways in how I experience God, right? Nature. I, uh, we sent the team off yesterday to, to uh, South Africa, and we got in a circle. And before we drove them to the airport, I just said to all 15 of them, I said, listen, um, find Jesus' face in South Africa. He's there. Whether through the landscape or through these kids or through the moms, the grandmas, find them. And when you do, I said, don't stop looking at him. Make sure you carve out time and space to see him. One of the surest ways in how we can encounter the face of Jesus is through the least, the last, and the lost. Because Jesus says in Matthew 25, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it unto me. And you'll have this eerie awareness that Jesus is staring right back at you when you serve the least, the last, and the lost. So pray towards Jesus' face, not his hands. It's one of the reasons why we struggle so much in our prayer life is because we're so focused on his hands. Focus on his face and be mesmerized by his beauty. The last part of being righteous is surrender daily. Every day surrender yourself to him. Because when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you are now encountering his power and his presence to be filled in your life. You're encountering his love. When you surrender yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ, it's allowing you to experience the power of God's love upon your life. Don't resign. You know how you know you're resigning? When you want to take a break from God. Yeah, I think I'll take a break. I think I'll take a break from church. I'll take a break from this. I'll take a break from praying. I'll take a break from reading the word. I'll just take a break from God. When you do that, you're not surrendering. You're resigning. And when you resign before God, you're, you're, you're naturally separating yourself from creating a lot more distance. And when that distance happens, you enter a dark world where you often think that God is even not around anymore and he doesn't love you anymore. When you surrender, you're saying, God, I need you in every way. I can't live and survive without you. And that's how you encounter God's love in such a beautiful way. We experience God's love that allows us to love others when we prepare ourselves for judgment day. Get to know the judge, the judge who is your father, demonstrate self-control and live in righteousness. So mid-July till today, it's been such a wonderful season for me personally in my own life. Uh, so many of you know that I went back to school uh, for a doctoral degree and that class has changed my life. Uh, we did a long-term fast as a church for 21 days and that was such a, an amazing experience for me to go through that with you guys. It was just really powerful. And one of the things that I've been seeing is I've been seeing like there's been such a deeper hunger and growth for God's presence in our church. It's been awesome to see that. But the thing that sort of I've been experiencing the greatest blessing on is just my relationship with my immediate family, uh, particularly with my wife and my three kids. And while I was in that long-term fasting with, with the church, um, a, bunch, a few of us went to an all-night prayer meeting on a Friday night. And while I was in this all-night prayer meeting, um, uh, the youth group had a lock-in. And uh, Pastor IJ, who was the youth pastor of, uh, for our middle school, texted me while I was praying. And the text was this, God did something really powerful in your son Christian's life today. He was crying. My boy hardly ever cries. He never cries. He said, he was crying. I'm not gonna tell you what happened because he needs to share that with you. So I'm like, I can't wait to talk to him about it. I get home, I, you know, I pick him up from the, all, the, the, their lock-in. I say, hey, what happened? Like, how was it? What, what, what did God do in your life? Talk to me, man. And he shared something with me, and I thought, oh, I don't know if that's it. So I, I, I went to IJ. and said, IJ, is this what happened to him? He said, ah, that's just like a little bit. There's something deeper that happened to him. Again, I can tell you, because I want it to come out of Christian's mouth. I said, all right. So I went over to him, I said, hey buddy, Pastor IJ says there's a little bit more. There's a lot more, you gotta spill the beans, man. Let me know, what, what did God do? I'm your father, I love you, I wanna know. I wanna know what God's doing in your life. Share it with me. It's like, ah, I'm not ready to. It's like, all right. And so I, I was trying to wait patiently. The next day I was driving him to summer school and I just said, hey buddy, I wanna know now, all right? <laughs> I said, listen, listen, 
Just you and me in the car, brother. Nobody else here. No one's going to hear this. It's quiet. What did God do in your life? Tell me, man. I've been fasting and praying for you, man. Come on. What did God do on that day? I want to know. And then he starts crying. And I'm like, oh, shoot. (laughs) I hope it's not about me. And he looks to me and he says, you know, it really hurts me when you tell me I'm not good enough in baseball. And I'm thinking, oh, it is about me. (laughs) Oh, brother. I said, really? He said, yeah. And so let me just put that in context, because I don't go to my son, you're not good enough, right, to play baseball. That's not how I say that. How I say it to him is simply this. I, I tell him, I say, listen, you are not good enough to just go to a game and expect to hit. You're just not that good to do that. Right? The only way you can get a hit is if you work really hard at practice. You gotta practice hard, and if you practice hard, you're gonna be able to hit well. Right? That's what I was trying to say to him, but I guess for him, he just interpreted the latter part of it. You're just not good enough in baseball. And so it really bothered him, and I could tell it hurt him, and I said, I'm really sorry. I said, Christian, I'm sorry. I said, "Um, what would you like me to do? Is there anything you want me to do to change? Because I'll change, I promise you I'll change. I was like, do you not want to play baseball anymore? Like, you know, should we just quit? He's like, no, I love baseball. I was like, okay, well then what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to be quiet before I bat. (laughs) He said, stop giving me advice on what I need to do to hit a ball. I told him, I said, but I'm the coach. I'm the coach of the team. I give everyone advice. He says, sit on the bench and just don't say anything. I said, okay, you've obviously given this some thought. I said, anything else you want me to do? And he said, yeah, if I strike out three times, don't say anything. (laughs) I already feel bad about it. I said, it was at that time in the All-Star game in June when you struck out three times and I got so upset and I kind of yelled at you in the car as we were driving up to Pilgrim Pines. He said, yeah. I said, I'm really sorry. I won't do that anymore. And he got himself together, wiped his tears, and he went to summer school. Went out of the car and walked up the stairway, and as he was walking up, I just said, God, don't let me ruin this kid's life. I just can't. And I was so grateful, because I think I've been doing an exceptional job and not doing, not saying anything, being quiet before he bats, everything, you know. And you know what God's been showing me? It's so amazing. He showed me to cherish my times that I have with my son as I'm helping him with his baseball. Like I spend a lot of my free time taking him to baseball lessons and I work with him downstairs every day. I pitch him, toss him the ball so he can hit it in a net and stuff like that. And back in, in, before he told me this stuff, it was all about his performance and I was doing it for his performance. Now God is showing me, just do it because you love him and I'm having such a great time. And I just tell him, I was like, dude, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life when you go to college. I said, I'm not gonna have a life anymore. I don't know what to do in my free time. I said, thank you for letting me be a part of your life, life like this. It's really amazing to see that. And uh, you know, my son really struggled to do his homework in seventh grade, it killed me. Killed my wife and I, we were like, why aren't you doing your homework? I don't wanna do it. It's not a good enough excuse, buddy. And we got so upset with him because he would never do it. And he's changing, man. Eighth grade, he just started eighth grade. He's doing his homework every day. And when he doesn't know his homework, he goes to his sister, could you help me with this? And she'll help him. And we're like, whoa, he's staying after school if he doesn't understand something. My wife and I are like, holy cow. My wife said to him this week, she said, who are you and what have you done to Christian on? And she said, I like you better than Christian, so stay. Stay, please stay. He never wanted to go to college. Last year, he'd fight with us. He'd say, I'm not going to go to college. What a waste of money. I'll just go to, I'll be a plumber, whatever. And uh, recently, he said to me, this is him talking. He said, hey, what college do you think I should go to? He's, something's changing. It's weird. It really is. And this past Wednesday was my 20th year anniversary. And again, you need to know how out of character this is for Christian. He doesn't do this. He sends me a text, I left early in the morning on Wednesday, a lot of meetings, and he sends me a text, and here's his text verbatim. Happy anniversary, three exclamation marks, heart emoji, all right? (laughs) 
Thanks for being the best dad in the world. Heart emoji. He never, ever wished me a happy anniversary, ever, like this. Here's what's happening. As I've been experiencing the amazing love of God upon my life over the past two months or so, it's causing me then in turn to love my kids, my wife better. And what that's doing is that it's allowing them to love me better. And I'm seeing just growth and change in their lives. And it's just, honestly, guys, it's blowing me away. And it's showing me how important love, experiencing God's love for your life is. That if we don't have that, if we don't encounter God's love for us regularly in our lives, there's no way that you're going to be able to love the people who are closest to you in your life in a healthy way. It's impossible. I don't care how healthy you grew up in your home. You just can't love people with your own strength in that way. And if you grew up in a broken home, there's no way you could begin to love your family with any kind of a healthy love. You need to experience the love of the Father in your life as you encounter the power of that love. Realize that it doesn't matter what anyone says. It doesn't matter what kind of shame you used to live in. But now you can live outside of it and know that you are a child of God that is deeply loved by him. Then you can learn to love others well. And then you can learn to receive love from them. It's a game changer, Metro. But you're going to have to want to center yourself around the love of God. So will you get to know your father, who is your judge? Will you begin to demonstrate some self-control so that you can allow God's love to control your life? And will you live in righteousness, surrender daily to him so that you can encounter the power of his love? That's my hope and prayer for you. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Here's what I want you to do, just very quickly. If you want to receive God's love, I just want you to say, Lord, I'm going to surrender myself to you. I'm going to live in self-control. I'm going to share areas of my life that I really struggle with in self-control. And then I'm going to live in righteousness. I'm going to surrender to you, God, every day of my life so I can encounter the power of Jesus upon me. And God, I'm no longer gonna pray looking at your hands. I'm gonna pray looking at your face, encountering the beauty and the splendor of who you are. So I'll just give you a moment to do that and I'm gonna pray for us. Go to him. pray that you would help us to know that we are your child, that we are your child, that more than you being a judge over our lives, you are our father. And I pray for everyone in this room, for every man, for every woman, for every young teenager that's in this room today. I pray, God, that you would allow them to encounter your love in such a pure and genuine way that they would never want to live their lives without it. And God, that you would help them to be free so they can demonstrate some self-control, so they can begin to live in that and have victory over areas that they know will destroy their lives and their family's life. And God, that they will begin to demonstrate a life of righteousness that they would deeply want to obey you in every area because God, when they do that, they get to live in the power of your love. And so God, help them to focus on your face and not your hands. Help them to understand the power of surrendering to you, not resigning before you. Would you help our church, God, to fall deeper in love with you and understand that that is something that we cannot live without. Thank you for this message. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for his example. Thank you, God, that he was able to share a message like this to a governor who was completely living a wayward life. 
And if you're living that wayward life today, I want you to know that God is here and he wants to love you. But you gotta go to him and ask him to forgive you of some of the things you've done to hurt yourself and hurt the people that you love. So God, we thank you for this time and for your, this word. In your name we pray, amen. How did God speak to you? Can you flip over your communication card? There's some next steps that I'd love for you to take. The first, I'm committing my life to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never said yes to Jesus, oh, it's important that you do. Please check that off. We'll get back to you. Second, I will pursue holiness by sharing an area where I struggle with self-control. What area of self-control do you struggle in? Maybe sharing that today would be the best thing you can do. Sharing that this week with somebody who can keep you accountable to it. Third, I will sign up for small group. Again, as Pastor Sunita mentioned, um, our small groups, we have a limited number of groups. Uh, so please uh, sign up today. Uh, you cannot do it online today. It's, it, it's shut off so that you can register here that we can kind of handle the administrative tasks of that. So sign up before you leave. The groups are going fast. Uh, fourth, uh, Thailand ambassador trip will be in February. I'm taking a group out there. If you would like to learn more about that trip, what it's like, we're going to be partnering with our missionaries, Scott and Christina Kwok. That's out there. They'll be here in a few weeks to share an update. Uh, please let us let me know and I'll, I'll get back to you. Uh, fifth, I'm interested in learning more about the trip to the Holy Land with Pastor David Hosang in March. Um, we're going to Jesus' uh, earthly home. We're going to Jerusalem. If you want to take this trip, which I think will just transform your life, um, please check that off and then go to the table. There is a table where you'll see there's a big, you know, bulletin board and things like that. You'll see some information and application. Pastor David will be there. He'd love to talk to you more about this amazing trip to Jesus' earthly home. All right. So I hope that you would take it and, and be a part of that amazing trip in March. Uh, last thing, sign me up for a Connections Dinner September 29th at 4 p.m. Uh, that's really learning a little bit more about what this church is about. Love for you to attend and have dinner with us at my home. It'll be next Sunday. I love to invite you to do that. Lastly, it's not on here, but on the communication card, Metro Kids for Second Service, they are really in need of volunteers. If, uh, if you're open to volunteering, I do hope that you would think about uh, doing, they need six more teachers. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Second Service, your kids are not able to go into classes and really learn about God's word and, and learn of the biblical stories because we don't have enough teachers. And so we need six more if you're willing to do that and uh, impart God's love to these kids uh, through his word. I do want to encourage you. Just check off Metro Kids and they will get back to you uh, this week, I promise you. 